I was feeling under the weather, but now I am above the weather. Hello and welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. And welcome to episode 44. I started on a new K-drama. <laughs> it's interesting because the subject matter is ghosts. Mm-hmm. Is so, it like comedy? I feel like it is comedy. You like, feel it's like not... <laughs> is it or is it not? Okay, as in comedy is definitely one of the genres. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's meant to be a comedy. There's a lot of comedic elements, but I think it's more of a drama. I don't know. K-drama genres are weird. But the drama is called Sell Your Haunted House. So it's basically about this like realtor who is an exorcist. And what she does is she goes to like haunted places like haunted mm-hmm. buildings, and she exorcises the spirits there and then sells the houses at, like, market price. So, like, every episode is just a case <laughs> about it. And then she teams up with this dude who's, like, a con man, but he turns <laughs> out to be a medium in which she can exorcise. So, so the way it works is there's certain kinds of people who are mediums mm-hmm. and... Like, they are given this protective necklace. So as long as they're wearing this necklace, spirits cannot enter their body. Interesting. But when it's time to perform the exorcism, what happens is the mediums remove the necklace and then the spirit is literally, like, absorbed into their body like like a sponge. And then she, like, stabs their heart with some utensil or whatever it is. And then Mm. the spirit leaves the body. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting premise. And then... The thing is, it's usually the exorcist that retains the memory of the like the the the, the ghost. Oh wow! But the medium she finds who is most likely going to become the love interest. I will be shocked if <laughs> there's no romance. But yeah, but in this instance, like this guy is special because he retains the memories instead of like the main character. So mm-hmm. yeah, but so far it's been pretty interesting. Watch me like not finish it. <laughs> We are watch me like not finish it because I'm just terrible at finishing things. Yeah, but other than that, it's pretty interesting. Have you been watching anything recently, Honda? Mostly watching documentaries like The Devil Next Door. I finished that and I'm still right now watching Don't Fuck with Cats. Oh my god, that case is damn interesting. Yeah, the first episode had a lot of the details about the cat videos. That one I skipped through because I I didn't want to imagine it. Yeah. I mean, we've we've never covered that case yet, but like the guy... Sounds kind of long. Okay. It is really long because there's a lot of elements to it. There's like, I guess part one, which is the animal abuse clips. And then part two is when he actually does murder people. But I don't know. In in cases of like graphic animal abuse, I feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that's also one of the reasons why I've never like I didn't start on the documentary. 
I mean, they don't play the full video. They play part of it. And then someone usually describes it. I I skip the describing part. Yeah, I don't need to to see parts of it and I don't definitely don't want to hear the descriptions of what happens because it's like Yeah, there was I think there were three like videos about the cats. I think I've heard about like the details of the videos a long time ago when I've I think watched other videos describing I mean talking about the case, mm. but I think it's such a long time ago that I don't remember the details. I feel like I remember vague details of what happened, but I refuse to refresh my memory on what happened. To I mean, I can give you like uh, one clue each for each video. I know one, there's an ice pick or something like that, right? That's a human. Oh, okay. Well, great. <laughs> I don't have to remember it. And we don't have to put any of our listeners through um, like thinking about it either. So, I mean, this documentary was released two years ago. Was it two yeah. or three? And I remember it was like quite talked about. Yeah, and it was, was on my really, recommends really popular for the longest time. time. Yeah, a lot of people were talking about it. But I think the most pertinent thing everyone was discussing about was the animal abuse. Yeah. So, yeah, I decided to give it a pass. Recently, Netflix came out with the Son of Sam documentary. Yeah, I haven't started I, on that. I don't know. I I think my expectation of the documentary was not what the documentary was about. Like, was I expected, it like through the lens of someone who was yeah, very absorbed it, with the case or something? Yeah. It, it, I forgot the guy's name. Something Murray, I think. But... It it was it's through this person's perspective and this person's research into it. And I don't know, I felt like I assumed this documentary was going to be about the case, not through somebody's lens okay. of it. So I was watching, I think I got through half of the first episode and I was like, mm, this wasn't really Maybe you what? have a, like you like a certain type of documentary. I do. I like very case focused ones. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you the wouldn't... Ted Bundy tapes is my. I feel like the dead Ted Bundy tapes encapsulates what I look for in mm. a documentary, and the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Like it is very focused on the case, the details of the case, and it doesn't really go through like the perspectives of mm. like an investigator or like, I don't know, eyewitness A or uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's why you didn't like the Night Stalker one. Yeah, I, listen, okay, the Night Stalker one, it started off pretty interesting, but the Night Stalker documentary goes through the perspective of the investigators. And Listen, I don't I didn't really mind it, but the thing that bothered me was the annoyingly long takes they would have on like the investigators just posing. <laughs> like there will be random sequences of like the so so they're being interviewed at this bar, right? And they're like random transitional clips of the cops just I I don't know, like leaning against the bar, like posing and like the camera just like lingers on them for like too long. And I don't care. Like you could have put, I guess, pictures of like 
I don't know, the crime, like newspaper clips at that time instead of like long shots of the investigators. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really like that one either. Yeah. Mm-mm. But I've heard people do like the documentary. It was okay. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe it's just fatigue from hearing the same case many times. I mean, you should try The Devil Next Door. I mean, I did. I did try The Devil Next Door. As in, like, properly watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Not on the go. I mean, yeah, okay. So, when I watched The Devil... Hold on, do you want to give, like, a synopsis of The Devil Next Door? It's about the trial on a person who is accused of being Ivan the Terrible, who was a... Op, was the operator of the gas chamber at the Treblinka uh, concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the guy was living in the US and then he, uh, I, um, I think, well, I forgot which agency, but the agency was, like one of the authorities was like told that he he's a Nazi. And yeah. And then they stripped his citizen American citizenship and then, like, shipped his ass to, like, Israel for a trial. And then he had to undergo a trial in Israel. But mm. I won't spoil the outcome of the trial. Or what yeah. happened. I feel like this was... Like, this documentary wasn't really talked about a lot. I didn't hear anyone talk about it. Mm. When I searched on Reddit, a lot of people liked it. Because it's really, like, a lot of twists and turns each episode. Yeah, it is. Like, um, I know the details about the case and like, yo, the outcome was something I did not expect. <laughs> I didn't expect the outcome to be that way because like, okay, I'm not going to say anything in case anyone wants to watch <laughs> it. Like, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but it's an interesting case. Just that the documentary didn't really appeal to me. You should I don't just know. sit and watch. <laughs> Yeah, I should sit and watch. What's the other documentary I watched that I actually watched the completion? Was it Jack the Ripper? What show do you even watch the completion? Hey, I've done it a lot. <laughs> no, there was this period of time where I went through like a documentary binge. Like I wanted to watch a lot of documentaries, like crime-specific documentaries. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, this was like where I started to figure out that a lot of the documentaries on Netflix are just not my cup of tea because I think watching the Ted Bundy tapes and the trials of Gabriel Fernandez and I guess even the Jack the Ripper one Mm -hmm. because it was just a very specific like so focused on the crime itself that when I watched the other ones that like are mostly through somebody's lens it like didn't pique my interest. So even though I was searching for a new documentary to watch, I couldn't stick with anything that Mm. really like caught my attention. So if anyone out there has like suggestions, it's like a documentary that is very focused on the case and not through the lens of like a reporter, like a reporter's whatever, or like, the cops or whatever. Please let me know. <laughs> yeah, something maybe something like Devil X or like I I just want something 
that is very focused on the crime. Apparently, staircase is quite good. Staircase? Okay, I've never heard of that. I know of the case, but I don't know how the documentary is done. But people Mm. said staircase was good. Maybe I'll give that a watch. What's staircase about, though? If I'm not wrong, it's about this woman who had a suspicious death and she's like an Asian person. And I think Mm -hmm. the husband or something was suspected. It's like a Ooh. case in the US. Okay, well, I might give that a shot. But yeah, if anyone has any docu- crime documentaries, or I guess any documentary that really piqued their interest, like, let us know. I really want to watch, like, an, an interesting documentary. If you like, get past the-, the first episode for Don't Fuck With Cats, it's actually quite interesting. Because the guy itself is quite interesting. Uh, yeah, he is, but... I think I would stick to... <laughs> it was quite interesting. I'm, I'm still on the second episode and I'm finishing the second episode and the guy really likes movies. And from how the documentary portrays it, he kind of adds details that he sees in the movies that he likes into his mother cases. Okay, yeah, I think I heard about this. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, oh, wow, this guy is really, like, Shit. insane. Honda. <laughs> you know... Both of us love movies and I know, we also right. love true crime. So, um, not to say that we are going to become killers. Like, no, that's not <laughs> happening. But uh, yeah, when I watched, when I was watching that particular part, I was just like, oh, this is in this is interesting. <laughs> Looks to the corner and sees your, your reflection in the mirror. Like, uh, <laughs> for educational okay. purposes. Yeah, for educational purposes. You know, I often think like. Because I mean it's it's you no know, it's an open secret, but like the police tracks our um, you know, <laughs> our internet searches and stuff. Like can you imagine if there's like a cop allocated to like each of us and then like <laughs> once a week they see us like Google Uh-oh. crime stories and like how to kill a person, da 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 and they're just like, What is happening? Like, listen, police for Singapore, we host a podcast. We are not trying to kill anybody and we are never going to attempt to either. So mm, I don't know. We about are Chris. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I mean, I don't leave my house enough to even like possibly go to a place to kill somebody. So I mean you don't have to necessarily leave your house. <laughs> what would I do? Like <laughs> throw a stick out my window and impale someone. It's, it's not gonna happen, okay? Mm-hmm. Before, like, we incriminate ourselves on, like, for crimes we didn't even commit, shall we move on to today's story? Sure. Today's story is really interesting because we have never covered this kind of, this kind of story. Kind. This kind of story before. So, I mean, I texted Honda so I won't go with the whole... Do you want to guess, guess what? what it is? And then... Okay, maybe we should do that. But Honda, give like a fake answer. Okay. Honda, do you want to guess what kind of story I'm covering today? Oh, I don't know. A plane crash? Oh my god, Honda. <laughs> are you psychic? Oh my god, it's so cringe. <laughs> oh my god. Academy Awards, give us our Oscar right now. <laughs> Best actress. 
Best actress. Oh my god, best actress and best supporting actress goes to Christiane and Honda. Congratulations. <laughs> anyway, yes, yes. Today's crime story is actually a plane crash, but it's not just a plane crash, it's an orchestrated plane crash. So today I will be covering the bombing of Korean Airlines 858. Have you heard of this? Like, no. You know, the way I came across this case was I was watching TV and like there was this ad that was, I think, talking about some Asian crime stories or whatever, whatever. On TV? Yeah, it was like on TV. I think it was a history, it was like an ad for the History Channel or something. And then I saw. K-A-L-858. And I was like, was there? <laughs> so I went to Google it and I was like, oh. Oh, okay. It's a plane crash. And I grew up watching a lot of air crash investigation. Yeah, I watch that quite often before I go on a trip. Okay, I don't, <laughs> I don't do that because I'm not a psychopath, clearly. But air crash investigation is so entertaining. It's a documentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's meant to be a documentary, but like I literally watch it the way I would like binge watch Criminal Minds. But <laughs> yeah, accuracy investigation is so interesting. Like to anyone who has not watched it before, I think you can still find, I think there are clips of like the full episodes are on YouTube or something like that. I don't know. You can search for it. But it's basically literally about the investigations surrounding like air crashes. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting because it's a lot of these crashes, right, are not like orchestrated. It's sometimes it's some sort of like technical malfunction, or there was this one episode where the pilots allowed a bunch of kids into the cockpit and then everything <laughs> goes wrong. Yeah, so it's stuff like that. It's very interesting to see how they piece together what happened to the flight. With um evidence with, with voice recordings from like the black box that are eventually found. It's very fascinating, very interesting. So if you are interested in plane crashes, oh this is a story for you. Also, hardly anyone is traveling on planes right now, so don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah. Sad. All right, so I'm just gonna jump right into this story. So on November 29th, 1987, Korean Airlines Flight 858, carrying 104 passengers and 11 crew, took off from Saddam International Airport, aka the Baghdad International Airport. So back in 1987, it was called Saddam International Airport. Today, it's called Baghdad International mm-hmm. Airport. Okay. Yeah. So... um. The flight was actually en route to Gimpo National Airport in Seoul, South Korea. Um, This, unfortunately, was not a one-way flight. This flight actually had two stopovers. So the first stopover was due to be in Abu Dhabi International Mm -hmm. Airport. And the next one was going to be at Don Mueang International Airport in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. I apologize for butchering all the names. Don yeah, Wang. So, oh my god. So anyway, yeah, the first um, so it was supposed to be from Baghdad to Abu Dhabi and then Bangkok. 
Then finally in Seoul, South Korea. It's so far. I know. As somebody who has taken a flight with a stopover, like fortunately it was a one stopover flight. I think it was pretty okay, but stopovers are kind of a hassle, especially if like the stops are very short. And you have to like rush through the airport to get to like places anyway. Yeah, I had to run through an airport before. It's not fun. It's really, really not fun. And I remember those ones where, I mean, this was a stopover and we stopped over at, um, I can't remember. It was one of the airports in China. So this was coming back from Korea to Singapore. Mm. And they changed our freaking gate. <laughs> and this was a, this was an airport that I've never been to. So my friend and I were literally like, where the hell is our gate? Mm. Anyway, that's not important. What's important is this flight. Okay. So as the flight was crossing over the Adaman Sea near Thailand, the plane exploded mid-air, killing everyone on board. Mm. Mm. So the big question is, what happened on board KAL-858? Like, was it just a case of aircraft failure or perhaps it was something more sinister? And as the name of this episode will give it away, it is something more sinister. So this case is actually quite interesting because not only is it a case of, I guess, terrorism but there's like politics involved like political espionage espionage <laughs> espionage and like histories of like the political histories of countries that come into like question and like political ideologies like it's very interesting so like mm-hmm. hang in there to get the full story Anyway, a few days earlier, on November 12, 1987, two North Korean agents, Kim Song-il and Kim Hyun-hui, traveled from Pyongyang to Moscow, 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 before <laughs> leaving for Budapest. There, they stayed at the home of another North Korean agent for six days. So now we are going to sort of follow these two North Korean Spice's journey till they, I guess, boarded KAL-858. So after six days staying with the other North Korean agent, they actually crossed over to Austria by car where the agent who, you know, let them stay at the home, um, gave them two fake Japanese passports. Hmm. So they were to pose as a father-daughter duo as they traveled. So Kim Song-il was actually pretty old, like... Articles describe him... Okay, listen. You barely find any information about this man. And I think there was only one article I came by that actually mentioned that he was elderly. Mm. Because Kim Hyun-hui is pretty young. She was 25, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Anyway, so these two... um, Like, their cover was to be like a father-daughter tourist oh. duo. And they pose as tourists... And stayed at the um, Parkering Hotel in Vienna. Once again, butchering pronunciation. 
They then bought tickets from Austrian airlines where they would travel from Vienna to Yugoslavia, which is now Serbia, and then to Baghdad, Abu Dhabi, and finally to Bahrain. So on November 27th, they were given a Panasonic transistor radio, which doubled as a time bomb. The Hmm. radio contained explosives, a detonator, and to intensify the blast, a bottle of liquid explosive. So along with the actual bomb itself, they were given this liquid that was basically meant to intensify the explosion from the blast. So that, I guess, doubles the the violence of the, Mm -hmm. you know, the plan they were going to have. So armed with everything they needed. So they had fake identities. They had the bomb. They even have an, they even had an escape route, which was tickets from Abu Dhabi to Rome. So with everything prepared, the two of them got ready to begin their mission. Mm. And then finally, on November 28, 1987, they took Iraqi Airways to Baghdad, where they would wait 30 minutes for Korean Airlines 858 to finally land. They then got on board the plane and walked to their seats. So they walked Mm. to seats 7B and 7C, where they placed their bombs on the overhead bin right above their seats. When the plane arrived at its first stop at Abu Dhabi, the two got off and disappeared. KAL-858 would then continue its journey, only to explode without any sign hours later as it neared its second stopover destination in Thailand. So nine hours into the flight, the the plane actually exploded. So what happened to the two perpetrators? I swear, this part, literally a scene out of a movie. I know we always say this, but it's (laughs) literally a scene out of a movie. I kid you not, okay? So Kim Song-il and Kim Hyun-hui attempted to fly from Abu Dhabi to Jordan, but had issues with their visas. So they had to go to Bahrain and then to Rome. But then the plane actually suddenly stopped at at Qatar. Mm -hmm. And if anyone knows anything about Qatari police security, they are freaking intense. Like they literally view everyone with suspicion. You could be literally... (laughs) Danny DeVito looking super innocent and tiny and they will still suspect you. Mm. Yeah. I've stopped over... Did I stop over at the Qatar airport? One of the airports in the Middle East. I can't remember if it was the Turkish one or the Abu Dhabi one, but security there is really intense. They are very, very, very strict. Mm. So... Foreshadowing. Um, Kim Hyun Hui and Kim Song Il were basically screwed. So landing in Qatar was actually not part of the plan. And mm. all of a sudden, they find themselves in this airport they were not supposed to be in. And on top of that, all planes coming in from Bahrain were suddenly stopped as well. Mm. So what the Qatari authorities did was they actually detained all passengers aboard the flight that took them to Qatar Mm -hmm. and um, they did it in a way that whatever flight they were supposed to board afterwards actually left without them. 
So oh. now the Qatari authorities had all these people from that flight, including Kim Song Il and Kim Hyun Hui, detained at the airport with them. But Kim Song Il and Kim Hyun Hui had a backup ticket just in case things went south. And what they did was they actually switched their tickets while um they were being while they were being detained. But the issue was even though they managed to switch their tickets, their passports were actually mm. in the possession of the Qatari authorities. And this was when the authorities basically looked at the passports and they were like, hey, these Japanese passports are fake. <laughs> and they could tell. Yeah. I don't know what magic they were doing, but they managed to figure out that it was fake. And so what happened was like they detained the both of them. And then while detained, um, Kim Song-il basically said to one of the police officers like, hey, I'd really like to smoke right now. And then the police officer was like, hmm, I guess you can go get a smoke. <laughs> so he like he pulls out this pack of like regular cigarettes. And then Kim Hyun Hui basically goes, Hey, can I smoke too? And then the police officer's like, sure, I guess. I see nothing wrong with that. Okay, that wasn't exactly what they said, but <laughs> to summarize, the North Koreans asked to smoke. The Qatari police officers were like, sure, why not? What they did was they had actually realized that they were essentially caught. They had no way out of this. Mm-hmm. So when they pulled out the pack of cigarettes, they weren't just regular cigarettes because inside the cigarettes were cyanide pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Kim Sung-il bit into the cigarette and began to convulse. And realizing what was happening, one of the police officers immediately like, I swear, straight off a movie. She didn't look at Kim Song-il. She turned her attention to Kim Hyun-hui and literally swatted the cigarette out of her arm before she could like fully bite into it. And because of that, Kim Hyun-hui like only ingested like a little bit of the poison. Mm. So two of them were rushed to the hospital. Kim Song-il was pronounced dead when he arrived, but 25-year-old Kim Hyun-hui managed to survive. And what she would reveal about this mission is really, truly very interesting. So some information on Kim Hyun-hui. She was born in North Korea and had been a child actress there. When she was 16, she had been recruited by the Workers' Party of Korea, aka the, the ruling party of North Korea at that time. Not to be confused with the Workers' Party of Singapore, made of very wholesome. <laughs> so, um, Hyun Hui had actually been indoctrinated with messages about how, um, like, her new role as this agent for North Korea was meant to, like, it was meant to reunite the two Koreas and that essentially it was an honour to be working in such a position because it was for the service of her fatherland, which is North Korea. Mm-hmm. And um, she was also sent to Macau to learn um, the language there. And her cover story would be that she was Chinese. 
And this was interesting because she was so good at learning languages that even... So in Macau, the, the dialect spoken is Cantonese. Mm-hmm. So the Cantonese accent is actually different from the Mandarin accent, right? And this was how she sort of got away with a lot of things because like even though her... Like she was very good at the language. Like there's always... Like if you're not a native speaker, your accent is not always 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Right? But because Cantonese had is a different dialect and the accent is slightly different from what people would expect to be Chinese, she managed to get a, away with it. So that's how her cover story of her being Chinese was able to be believable and like just like she was she managed to solidify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eventually, after several years of like being in Macau, learning the language, yada yada yada, she was brought finally brought back to Pyongyang, where she was actually taught how to use explosives. Just trained at a secret and elite espionage school run by the North Korean military, where not only was she taught how to use explosives, but she was taught how to kill with literally her hands and feet, and how wow. to use rifles. So. Literally a Black Widow situation. She was turned into like this human weapon. Mm. So after some time training at Pyongyang, this was when she received her mission, which is to blow up KAL-858. And she was told that this was essentially a plan to reunite the two Koreas. So Mm -hmm. she was also told that this was just the first mission in like a series of missions so at this point you might be wondering what is the relevancy of blowing up this plane to reunite the Koreas? because how does that work right this was actually um the bigger plan was actually to destroy the seoul olympics that was going to happen the next year 1988 mm. and in doing so in destroying the the olympics it would eventually destabilize the South Korean government and then expose them as Hmm. being puppets of America. Interesting. Yeah. If you think this logic doesn't make sense, (laughs) it's because it does not make sense. (laughs) Yes. So don't worry. On December 15th, 1987, she was extradited to Seoul at first, she told investigators that she was a Chinese orphan who grew <laughs> up in Japan and that she had nothing to do with what happened to KAL-858. But like the investigators were like, mm, sure, Jen. I mean, because it was a really suspicious. Plus, when she was detained by authorities in Qatar, like she literally attacked one of the officers and tried to grab their gun. And mm-hmm. also the cigarettes that she used. I mean, Kim Sung-il and she used, right? These particular cigarettes were found to be quite specific to North Korean agents. So other North Korean agents that um, South Korea managed to capture mm-hmm. all had this kind of brand of cigarettes. So the South Korean authorities were like, yeah, you know, we don't sell this here. Qatar doesn't sell these brands here. There's only one place that does. So... You know, if the shoe fits. Chan Hui would tell investigators in South Korea that everything had actually been planned perfectly 
until Bahrain when their passports were realized to be faked. So if not, Hyun Hui was very sure that the both of them would have gotten away with bombing the plane. Mm-hmm. So after eight days of being interrogated, okay, this was pretty interesting. So after eight days of being interrogated, right, Hyun Hui was actually shown a film about South Korean life. Oh wow. Okay. And this girl was genuinely shocked. Because all her life she was told that South Korea was like this puppet of America. And because of that, they the the government was corrupt, the people were extremely poor. <laughs> but then after she watched the film, she was like, What? Like everything that she's been told has been untrue because like life seemed to be pretty good in South Korea as opposed to her reality in North Korea. Mm. And at this point, Hyun Hui, like she essentially realized that she was a pawn used by the North Korean government and she essentially confessed to executing the bomb on KL-858. So at a press conference held by the Agency for National Security Planning, which was the South Korean Secret Services Agency, she admitted that she and Kim Song-il were operatives from North Korea. So she admitted to leaving the radio, which contained C4 explosives and a liquor bottle containing 700 milliliters of PLX explosives on the plane. And it was set with a timer to go off in nine hours. She also said that the plan had been personally planned by Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung, and that the attack was meant to destabilize the South Korean government and disrupt its 1988 elections and Olympics. Ultimately, after this, Kim Hyun-ri was actually sentenced to death, but was eventually pardoned by South Korean President Ro Tae-woo, who acknowledged that she had been a victim of North Korea and had been brainwashed into believing her mission was for mm. the greater good. Okay. Which I found particularly interesting because yeah. I feel like it's quite rare especially given the circumstance of like why she bombed the plane like destabilizing the government and like messing up the olympics are like huge things which she managed to maybe he had a political agenda Mm. we shall see if he did (laughs) wink wink nudge nudge no but even then like okay maybe we can have a discussion about this afterwards but it's just the de-radicalization of these kind of people. It's it's not easy. Mm. Also, when I was reading this, I felt like it was suspiciously quick of her to sort of de-radicalize and open her eyes and be like, oh shit, like I was indoctrinated by a government. I don't know. And- if she wasn't locked in North Korea, then she should be able to see images of South Korea, right? That's true, but at the same time, like she was being fed the these like this information by her government, like her fatherland, right? Yeah, but like if 
I mean, if the, I mean, that time the Olympics is coming up, then there should be a lot of like news about South Korea coming up. But the media is obviously biased and skewed. Yeah, wasn't Korea. she in Hong Kong? Yeah, so that's the other thing that I was like, okay, maybe is, she was. I mean, Hong Kong at the time was. A, a bit less a bit less controlled by China at that time yeah but at the same time perhaps she wasn't like allowed to freely roam around Macau yeah I mean I get that they will probably be uh, surveyed like, mm. under surveillance I mean there's like even in Vietnam there's like North Korean communities yeah well. so anyway I digress it's, it's still a bit I was like wow I mean, for 25 years, she was indoctrinated, right? And then in eight days, she was like, oh, shit, I see yeah, the light now. Fast. Yeah, so, mm, I mean, all right, we'll <laughs> move on. So, regarding the accusation that the attack was planned by North Korea, make a guess, okay? North Korea came out and were like, oh, shit, we are so sorry, man. <laughs> We we planned this and we are wrong. Or they came out and said, no, Kim Hyun Hui, don't know who she is. KL858, never seen that. Planes? We don't know what planes are. We didn't do this. Which one do you think it was? North Korea must have been so apologetic. Oh my God. Honda, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Let's we have a winner here. Give her the million dollars. Okay. <laughs> no, North Korea was just like, no, we don't know anything about this. And they flat out rejected like any ideas that they were the ones who planned this attack. Mm-hmm. Instead, they said that it was actually South Korea, the government of South mm-hmm. Korea that planned this entire attack. It was a ploy. Mm-hmm. And the United States State Department also classified the bombing of KL-858 as a terrorist act and petitions were filed against Kim Jong-il for his involvement based on Kim Hyun-hui's testimony to compensate the families of the victims on KL-858. But nothing came of it and he eventually passed away in December 2011. <sighs> Also, I feel like it just, I mean, the families do deserve justice, but it's just really difficult when it you is. are trying to go up against somebody like the North Korean leader. So, uh, as for Kim Hyun Hui, in 1993, a book titled The Tears of My Soul was published. So, the book was essentially like a memoir and it recounted her life and her training as a North Korean agent and like whatever events basically led up to the KL-858. And she actually donated all the revenue from the book to the families affected by the bombing. Oh. Mm. In 1990, there was, was a movie about her. I mean. So <laughs> the, movie, the movie is titled Mayumi. So if anyone's interested in watching it, there is a movie about her. In 2010, she visited Japan to meet families of those who were 
who were abducted by North Korea in the 1970s and 80s. So these were Japanese people who were taken and forced to teach North Korean agents to disguise themselves as Japanese. So some of these um some of these people who have been abducted abducted were actually people who trained Kim Hyun-hui. Mm. Yeah. Also, if I'm not wrong, and this is back to documentaries, I believe there is a documentary about North Korean, like the North Korean people abducting Japanese. I mean, it's it's been. Oh, a did I big see issue. that on Channel News Asia? Yeah, maybe Channel News Asia is a big issue. I mean, um, the one the most famous one is about this girl who was kidnapped when she was a high schooler. She's still yes. in North Korea, and they don't know if she's dead or alive. And her parents are already, I forgot their actual ages, but they're 80 plus, 90 plus. Mm. And every time they'll be like, you know, really begging for their daughter back. Yeah, and It's just so sad because they probably don't have long to live and they don't know what happened to her. It's yeah. quite heartbreaking and, to see. And once again, it goes back to, we don't know what they use, especially because she's a girl. Like she could have been thrown into the sex trade essentially yeah so I mean some <sighs> were, were successfully brought back to Japan mm. like one of the prime ministers were able to um, uh, them. yeah like to discuss and bring them back to Japan so he was very popular for doing that mm. my grandfather loved him <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah it's still it still happens until today. And all of this happened so quietly. And it's very difficult to get these people back. But yeah, at this point, like, Japanese people were literally taken to, in order to train North Koreans and help them to sort of become Japanese so that they have, like, strong cover stories, you know? Anyway, so today, um, kid. Kim Hyun-hui actually lives in an undisclosed place for her own safety. So it's it's actually to avoid like people attacking her for mm. what she did. Yeah. Of course, this great disgrace. This case has some controversy. So, Hanla, you mentioned this slightly earlier, but the case was ultimately used as a political leverage in South Korea. So known as Operation Rainbow. The former president of South Korea, Chon Do Hwan, used the event to sway voters to vote for Ro Tae Woo, who later pardoned Kim Hyun Hui. Mm. Mm. Furthermore, declassified transcripts between the foreign ministry and the Blue House, which is South Korea's equivalent mm. to the White House, uh, revealed that the extradition of Kim Hyun Hui was actually prioritized over search and rescue efforts for survivors of the crash. Mm-hmm. Mm. And a former employee at the Ministry of Transport and a Catholic priest, so good for him, Shin, Shin Song-guk, he, this dude conducted a 15-year-long investigation and he found that even though Kim Hyun-hui's Japanese passport was fake, the stamps used in it were real. Mm. And it was also found that there was a stamp stating that she had departed from Narita Airport on November 14. While Kim Hyun-hui actually stated that she was already in Budapest preparing for the bombing at that time. Mm. 
So there is a mismatch in accounts. Mm. On top of that, he also stated that uh, at, at that point in time, right, that fake Japanese passports were actually used widely and not just by North Korean spies. Like regular people were just having fake Japanese passports. <laughs> Can you imagine if I had a fake Japanese passport? <laughs> they look at it and look at me and be like, ma'am. <laughs> Like, I'm a new citizen. <laughs> I'm a new citizen. I I just got my passport yesterday. They'll be like, okay, sure. Um, Kim Hyun Ri was also probably stationed in Japan and left North Korea before the age of seventeen. And this is because in North Korea, proof of citizenship is actually given at the age of seventeen. And Kim Hyun Ri has no documents proving that she was actually North Korean. Mm. And besides mm-hmm. her word, there's also no proof that she actually worked for the North Korean government either. Mm. But in her defense, would you keep any proof of you being like a spy for the North Korean government? They're obviously not going to give you like a written contract to keep somewhere. True. Right? So there were also other inconsistencies such as the dates of events, hotel rooms used... And like, basically the stuff in her written statement when she was uh, captured and in her biography just basically didn't match. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, you can also chalk it up to the fact that so much time has passed. Details are not always going to, I mean, your memory is not the best mm-hmm. reliable thing. Yeah, it's not. So there's that. Um, interestingly, last year, 2020, the alleged main wreckage of the plane was actually discovered in the Adamant Sea. Hmm. Yeah. So sonar scans actually showed a winged-shaped object of about 33 feet long and like mm-hmm. a 90 feet long section that could possibly be the full sage. But even though they have like the sonar scans, there's still nothing to 100% proof that this is the actual plane. Mm. Yeah. So, this is the story of the bombing of Korean Airlines 858. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed. (laughs) I find it a bit suspicious that in eight days, she was like, oh, I see the truth now. Nah. I don't think it's possible. Maybe it was like an inkling. Maybe, like she saw it and she yeah, was yeah, yeah. like, oh shit. I don't know. I think if she really was de-radicalized, I think she should have had doubts even before that. Right. But I don't know. This just... I mean, you you were born and brought up in North Korea... Mm. And, and she especially be- picked at the age of 16, which is, you know, when pe- when kids are essentially very vulnerable and quick to believe a lot of things. Yeah, I don't think you'll be de-radicalized in eight days. Yeah, I mean, Singapore also has had a few cases recently of like teens that have planned to do pretty terroristy things. And you know, you'll see in the articles that essentially explain that 
the de-radicalization process is going to be difficult and it's going to be a long one. Because you, it's a belief system, you know? Like, you, you can't change your belief so quickly. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just really interesting, like, why they even harbor those kind of thinking in the first place. And yeah. then one of them was uh, inspired by the Christchurch massacre. Yeah, the Christchurch massacre. And uh, he read the manifesto of that. Which is wild, the fact that he could find it. I think you can easily find anything. You can find a lot of things. It's very, very... But I just don't know. I don't understand how he could have been so inspired, like as if the manifesto was talking to him Mm. or for him. When I don't think that Christchurch shooter, I don't think he would care that much for that guy, that Singaporean boy. I mean... Because <sighs> the Christchurch shooter is like a like a so white like supremacist, a, isn't yeah, it? he is. So I don't understand why that you know the, the the boy would be like idolizing him. It's it's very interesting. This is the kind of psychology that I wish I could like understand deeply about. But alas, we will just have questions. About I mean, it. Yeah, I also don't want to really understand the psychology of <laughs> these kind of people. Yeah, so even in Kim Hyun Wee's case, like she she was recruited at the age of 16. She mm. genuinely thought that I mean by bombing the plane, it would like that's so far-fetched though. <laughs> yeah, cause chaos to the government, and then because of that, like you know. F it up so much that the Olympics and the elections would all just like sink to the depths of the ocean, like the plane, I guess. But uh, it's so crazy because once again, it feels very dystopian. Like these things cannot possibly like really happen, right? But it does. I mean, there are other countries other than North Korea that are like actively trying to so like What's the word? Chaos, mm. distrust. Yeah. I'm not gonna it's name that country. Interesting <laughs> because when I went to Korea, wow, it was literally like two years ago. This is so sad. Um, on one of the weekends, like a group of friends and I, we went actually to the DMZ, which is a demilitarized zone. And oh my god, I have a lot of thoughts about this. The first is it's wild because the the two Koreas, right? are not at peace, mm-hmm. right? Their war is essentially at like a stalemate. It's like put on pause. But South Korea has turned the entire demilitarized <laughs> zone into this tourist attraction. Yep. You can go down there, spend a day with like a tour guide and then go back home. It is so weird. And like there is this one area where they have these binoculars you look hmm. through it and you can see North Korea, like yeah, the flag. Yeah, yeah. It is so strange. I I remember, I mean, it was the highlight of my trip. Like I, I enjoyed that day so much. It was so wild, but I couldn't help but feel very weirded out by the fact that all this has been turned into like a tourist attraction. It's as if you could go down there and sort of forget that there is this stalemate going on, that there's actual like... It's like dark tourism. Yeah. 
And there was also these tunnels that we could crawl into. So basically these tunnels were actually dug by North Koreans and the plan was actually to dig these tunnels all the way into Seoul. But, I mean, they were found. So, yeah. And it was wild because we got to literally crawl through these tunnels. We could experience it. It's mm. so weird. And they have, like, a gift shop. You can buy, like, DMZ chocolates and shit. It's so weird. But also so fascinating. But yeah, so that's the story of the bombing of KL858. And I hope you enjoyed it. It's definitely an interesting and new kind of story. Not really sure if it constitutes as true crime, but it's it's true and it is crime. Oh my God. So. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and click that follow button on Spotify. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon and whatever podcast platform you listen to. And you can follow us on Instagram at HGU Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye-bye.